All right, welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 90. Today I'm here alone in this lonely, cruel, and miserable world where it's going to be gray for the rest of your miserable lives. I'm thinking of Groundhog Day, one of my favorite favorite random movies. Brad is not here with me. His wife is in labor or was in labor at some point in the middle of the night, and for obvious reasons, he's not going to be here. That doesn't mean there aren't a ton of things I wanted to talk about. I, I thought about postponing. I thought about being like, hey, you know, guys, I, you, I'm sure you understand. There's not much we can do about that, and it's a wonderful thing, and hopefully everything's going well. But there's just so many interesting things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to go out here and, and fill in as best I can for uh, in Brad's absence. It's just me today, but we'll see what we can do. I want to start with a couple different stories here. Um, these stories have played out across a couple months now, and they've culminated in a really interesting way that I think says a lot about the market right now and about the the current state of the economy and and the political framing that economics and everything we deal with really in life right now is is pushed into. And so to begin with, I want to talk a little bit about the Daily Wire. Now, the Daily Wire, if you're not familiar with it, the Daily Wire is the, the parent company that people like Matt Walsh, Michael Knowles, Ben Shapiro, uh, there's a number of others, um, other big names and minor names that are working for them and they're expanding their content and they're really ambitious. And in some ways, you could say they're the new voice of conservatism, uh, replacing a lot of the old talk shows. Uh, this group is. I would guess that they're the most popular. I guess I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head. I haven't actually checked. Um, I know Ben Shapiro is wildly popular. Everybody's heard of Ben Shapiro. And for good reason. Um, the, their influence and their reach is, is really wide, and they're ambitious, and they're forward-looking, and so they're doing all kinds of things. They're, they're far from peaking. And the Daily Wire used to have a sponsor called Harry's Razors. This this company, uh, they were a major innovator in terms of razors. <laughs> major innovator, maybe maybe selling it a little too high, but in terms of breaking up the competition, you know, you had your classic razors that you would see at the grocery store, uh, particularly for men, and a few companies and a variety of styles, and the, each each step forward seemed to be the the place seemed to be let's just stick another blade on this razor. So Harry's razors went back to the drawing board and they said, well, we can make a, a higher quality razor. It's going to be, the whole thing's going to be metal handle. Um, and, and we're going to sell it. And who are we going to advertise it to? Well, they decided one of the most effective ways to advertise it was through conservative talk radio and podcasts like the Daily Wire. So the Daily Wire specifically had been advertising them for a long time. One day, somebody tweets, tags Harry's in it, and says, Harry's is sponsoring Michael Knowles, one of the people, that, one of the commentators there, the same Michael Knowles who is spreading homophobic and transphobic content. He had Joseph Nicolosi Jr. as a guest on his show and equates being trans to having schizophrenia. It is wrong that Harry's or anyone sponsors this vile content. Harry's Razors sees this and responds on their, through their official Twitter handle. Thanks for bringing this up. 
We condemn the views in this video, which are inexcusable and at odds with our longtime support of the LGBTQ community. We've ended our relationship with this show and are looking into our sponsorships to prevent any values misalignment going forward. They then proceed to withdraw all of their uh, advertising from conservatives and basically take their money and, and, and run with it. They, they had become very successful. They had become very popular. People would subscribe to them. You'd get, you'd get kind of like a, a membership per se, where you're, you're getting a monthly amount of razors in the mail and they're high quality and so on. You know, they're selling you a, not just the, the brand in a, in a supposedly high quality razor, but a kind of uh, membership package and subscription package. And this is what, how Jeremy Boring, Jeremy Boring is the, the CEO or co-CEO, I guess he and, he and uh, Ben Shapiro together co-founded the Daily Wire. And Jeremy Boring is uh, uh, by far my favorite of that crew. He's, re he's really funny. He's really interesting. Um, he's often referred to as the God King. Uh, and he doesn't do a talk show, a regular talk show like the rest of them do. Perhaps that's why he's my favorite. If you, the daily talk show is brutal and it's hard to stand just about anybody doing it on a daily basis. But anyway, he replies, quote, Harry's makes great razors. That's why we've been proud to advertise them for years. We know Harry's doesn't share our values. Who cares? Economic decisions shouldn't be political decisions. But now, Harry's has decided to declare that conservatives don't deserve great razors. I mean, I'm sure they'll still take your money, but they don't want to be seen taking it by woke Twitter accounts with two, yes, two followers. What matters to Harry's is to be seen by the left as ideologically pure. If you've followed any of the business moves in the last, I don't know, year or two, you get a lot of stuff like this. You get a lot of virtue signaling, as it's often referred to, from corporations suggesting their support for various things like uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which at this point is, at least the organization is taking some serious heat. It's extremely unpopular among people who supported it and who are, are fans of the movement to this day. Uh, because the organization which got all the money has seriously misused it. But that's a story for another time. Companies would signal all kinds of, of woke ideas. You know, I, uh, the ideas of people like Ibram X. Kendi and uh, from the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. These kind of ideas were all over and being embraced by corporate boards across the nation, often in a very hypocritical manner where they were doing things like, you know, censoring their content for China and uh, being very careful not to say certain things to offend China, but, but happy to bash on conservatives. And if you, you've listened to the show, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself a conservative. Uh, that doesn't make this political move right. You don't have to like conservatives to think this is a stupid idea for reasons I'm going to get into at the end of this little, this little walk through these stories. So this is where things get really, really crazy and <laughs> really quite funny. Jeremy Boring doesn't leave it there. 
you know, what he could be like is, okay, there's another, there's another corporation wants to virtue signal. We're going to have a hard time getting sponsors again, whatever. We'll, we'll deal with it. We've dealt with it for a long time. That's not what he does. Jeremy Boring creates a razor company called Jeremy's Razors. And you can get to Jeremy's Razors by typing in, I hate Harry's. Just let that soak in for a moment. The advertisement, when they announce this, is much more about how dumb Harry's is than it is about how great their new razor is. And the whole thing is so riddled with political talk. Like if you wanted to satirize conservatives, they, they just totally embrace that in the advertisements. They talk about how their, <laughs> you know, the razor handles are strong and not for bettas. They talk about, they're, they're throwing slurs and all kinds of, uh, derogatory language and insulting uh, woke people as frequently as they can on their website. And at one point in the advertisement, Jeremy Boring himself, who is the main character of this advertisement, takes a flamethrower to a sign of Harry's for Harry's razors. The obvious message being this is war and we're not going to go quietly. Now, they had no intention of making a razor company. This is 100% out of spite. This is the crazy part, though. It's going to work. In fact, it's already worked. They've already snagged a significant share of Harry's customers. Why? How? Is it because they made an excellent product? No, it's because Harry's, with their decision, with their political decision, to insult people and make decisions based on politics have decided to make that a part of their product, right? They, they've, they've associated a political ideology with their brand, which means if you want to compete with them, one of the ways in which you can compete with them is to take the other political ideology. Daily Wire for all their, <laughs> for all the things I disagree with them on, they're not stupid and they've been wildly successful for a reason. And this company is already very successful. Now we'll see if it lasts. You never know. I don't know if their product's actually good. I guess we'll find out across time. And, uh, but that's, that's precisely the point is that their product doesn't even have to be very good. Normally, if you want to get people to switch off of, a, off of something they're using, you have to persuade them that you've got something better. And the Daily Wire did that. But it's not in the quality of the razor. It's in the fact that they're giving them a product without giving them a bunch of garbage. Right? They're giving them a product uh, without, uh, without, simple, without insulting them to go. Um, some of the things that they, uh, <laughs> here's a quote from, from Jeremy Boring again. They paid us. We advertised their razors. We did this for years with the clear understanding that Harry's can leave at any time for any reason. But after they left us for saying that boys are boys and girls are girls, it was too much for them. So they betrayed us. At the behest of a two-follower Twitter account, Harry's publicly condemned our show, attacking not just me, the CEO and God King, but all of you. 
They said the views you hear on our programs, whether you agree with them or not, are inexcusable and dropped their ads on our network due to misaligned values. They tried to shame you for the unforgivable sin of not adhering to their work platitudes du jour. Excuse me. Their woke platitudes du jour. Enough. Harry's and their ilk don't want you in their world, but I want you in mine. So stop giving your money to corporations that hate you. Give it to me instead. And that appeal is working. It's working. And it's not working because of conservatives. It's working because of corporations like Harry's. This is the battleground they've picked. This is, this is the reaction. If you don't think that there is massive blowback coming, if you don't think that, that conservatives are going to start creating companies that don't even have to be good, that are going to get massive amounts of funding, then you're not paying attention. They're not going to go quietly. There was this, there was this idea that, that you could put enough social pressure on the corporations and the corporations would then buckle and support your causes and donate money to your candidates and so on. And it appeared to work for, what, five years now uh, since, I mean, it's been going longer than that, but really a, a tide turned maybe five years ago. And since then, it seems to have been becoming more unanimous. And in another country where you can't create businesses as easily as you can create them here, it's not nearly as easy as it should be, by the way. It, we're, we're so far from a free market, especially in terms of barriers to entry. But that's besides the point where it's free enough that a successful group like the Daily Wire can make it happen. Um, and they're going to. And if you want the Daily Wire to be filthy rich, you better just hope that the other corporations keep doing what Harry's is doing and keep doing what most of them have been doing for the last several years. The Daily Wire will rapidly claim significant portions of the economy and all kinds of random areas. And it's, it's just a strange thing. The market gives people what they demand. And what they demand, what they've been demanding, is some kind of recognition of woke values. That's what the, the pressure, the, the, you know, the noisy people have been demanding. And the corporations have made the mistake of saying, this because this is such a loud voice, because there's so much anger, because a lot of the times it's their employees, right? New employees who've come out of the universities, and this is the ideas that they believe. Because of that, they're going to, they, they ought to get in line with these ideas. They need to bend to this, and they need to, to uh, adopt some of these values and so on. Um, and who knows, maybe to some degree they're doing it sincerely. I, I doubt it, because frankly, the, it's a generational thing, and the generations that are woke are just not the generations that are in power. It'll be another 15 years before that really starts happening. But that's besides the point. I'm sure some of them are. Uh, Twitter being a good example, which we'll get to. Um, but in, and other tech companies. Other tech companies are often led by very young people who are innovating, and so that's a, the, the age there is younger. Anyway, that, this is, we, as I said, about five years ago, things started to change. Things are starting to change again. And they're changing because you've, people have made it easy for conservatives to compete in the market of products because what people are looking for is not primarily a good product, but the right ideology. 
So to steal market share from Harry's, you just need a different ideology. You need a conservative ideology or freedom-loving ideology of any kind, really just a a non-woke ideology, and you can claim some of the market share if your product's decent. And the writing is starting to be on the wall. Netflix recently released a memo. A memo, I keep, uh, for some reason, memo is the word I always go to when they release any kind of information. I guess technically it probably is. You can find this at jobs.netflix.com slash culture. You'll see this if you're looking for a job at Netflix. It's a really, really long article, paper, description. It it goes on forever. (laughs) But among the other things it says in there, quote, as employees, we support the principle that Netflix offers a diversity of stories, even if we find some titles counter to our own personal values. I'm going to pause for a second to note that Netflix has gotten a lot of pushback from woke employees and people on the outside for Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle... (laughs) Dave Chappelle's comedy is not for me. I, I have no... That type of comedy has never struck me as funny. I do not enjoy it at all. But if you're familiar with him at all, he's considered the most famous comedian right now in the world, the, the greatest comedian in the world. I think that's pretty universal that people will describe him that way. Um, though, like I said, I don't, I don't find him funny at all. It's just not my kind of humor. He, uh, he'll get on and he will say the most offensive and you know, he'll, he'll find whatever line people don't want to talk about and he will push it extremely far. And so often what he's saying is just extremely crass crude and often cruel things pushing that line and and to some people that that pushing of the line is is inherently funny you know it's a kind of uncomfortable funny uh that's never appealed to me for whatever reason but you can imagine if you've heard him at all some of the things he says about issues like homosexuality and transgender and other things. If you were to say, what is the things that you can't, what are the things you're not supposed to say in society right now? And you give that to someone like him and he's going to push that as far as you can. You can imagine that he's offended some people and he's offended a ton of people. He, he's extremely, uh, Im, what's the word? Uh, not politically correct to say the least. So a lot of people were not happy with that and, and other things. Um, uh, it's interesting on the flip side, conservatives don't really care for Netflix because of the what they see as crazy things that Netflix is promoting. I digress. Back to the back to the Netflix culture page. Depending on your role, you may need to work on titles you perceive to be harmful. If you find it hard to support our content breadth, Netflix may not be the place for you. That's pretty clear. We're not going to edit the content because you don't like it or you perceive it to be harmful. And if you can't handle that, go work somewhere else. Now, Netflix, to be fair to them, I think has pretty much always held this line. There were questions of whether they would bend. And I don't know if it's ever been this explicit. You can find more in there. They talk about it. We're, we're not a family in the same culture document. We're not a family. We're a dream team. And on a dream team, the best players play, essentially. You know, they're drawing an analogy for what is, the, what is our work culture going to be like. We're going to play the best players. And if you're not a good player, if you're not a, you know, bringing value to the team, you're probably not going to play, i.e. you're not going to work here. 
and uh, you know it's an opportunity and it's performance and it's a their vision is very uh, very capitalist. They have an element in it in which they reject rules, but rules you know a, a strict hierarchy isn't an automatically a function of capitalism. In fact, if you want to be profitable in a creative enterprise, the rules can be really problematic. They can they can be something that actually holds you back. Creative firms of all kinds, from graphic designers to artists to uh, game designers to uh, filmmakers and so on. You want, in any creative enterprise, you have to be careful with the structure. There, there's a reason for this, and it makes perfect sense. And if you let businesses compete, they figure this out. That's how they figured this out to begin with. And and the result is that you're going to get uh, a lot more freedom, per se, in, in creative enterprise within the organization. Because the hierarchy, the kind of military hierarchy of classic business it just doesn't make sense there, and it's not effective. It's not going to be able to compete as well. And this is, again, people for some reason associate capitalism with this top-down hierarchy of, of a business structure that is the kind of classic factory portrayal. It's not the case. Any, any free arrangement is perfectly legitimate within capitalism, as long as there's no, no coercion, right? No one's being forced uh, to do something. Any arrangement is fine, and the best arrangements will rise to the top. In this case, in creative endeavors, often it's a looser organization. Just throwing that out there. Now, see it. We've, so we've got the Daily Wire, which is expected. The conservatives they're going to push back. We've got Netflix, which are pretty liberal, but they're they're running a. They want to make the best content they can, and they're not going to be political about it. This third one blows my mind. And this, again, I said there's a, a shift happening right now. And if this isn't evidence of it, I don't know what is. CNN, which is Brad and I's favorite whipping boy, <laughs> our favorite target to, to just bash on for virtually any purpose, uh, CNN is changing, at least in theory. They're trying to change. And here's, here's the evidence for that. So there was the merger recently. You probably heard about CNN Plus. Maybe Brad and I gleefully talked about it. I think it's one of the funniest things that's happened to a news organization. They tried to create a, a, a subscription with extra stuff called CNN Plus. It lasted something like three weeks before it was torched. It was garbage. They spent a crazy amount of money. They ended up with like 10,000 subscribers when they needed a lot more than that. Plus, they were, at the time, their parent company was merging. And there was this big merger between Warner Brothers and Discovery. And with that merger is going to become come new prioritization. It was, a, it, was a, it was silly, even if it was a good idea to create CNN Plus, it was silly to do it immediately before a merger. So anyway, the merger happens and it's shut down. And it's shut down because they, they try and say it's because of the merger. It's, it was going to be shut down even without it, because it just wasn't making any money. It was losing massive amounts of money. Everybody knew this except CNN. Everyone in the world looked at this and was like, this is a terrible idea. Why do you think this is going to make money? CNN, with the merger, and with the massive amount of sex scandals, there's a, there's a collection of articles on the Babylon Bee about CNN's culture. Uh, you know, jokes about them having to keep resetting the days since an employee committed a sex crime back to zero, you know, so frequently because they had so many scandals um, from Cuomo to their, their boss doing terrible things. And anyway, they've had to change some things and change some spots. Beyond that, so they've, they've got a new CEO of CNN. And they have a new CEO above them through the merger. 
And the one, the the Discovery CEO, uh, the one who's kind of over the whole thing now, is David Zaslav. Zaslav, 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 probably. He went on to Oprah Winfrey talking about it and talking about his vision for CNN. This is reported by the New York Post, and they they quote him in a, in a couple ways, and they sum him up in others. Uh, I'll share the link so you can see it yourself if you'd like to. Uh, he says, first and foremost, we should and we will be advocates for the truth. If we get that, we can have a civilized society. And without it, if it all becomes advocacy, we don't have a civilized society. And he describes, that's a close quote, and he goes on to describe uh, other news groups and current news groups, most of them, as advocacy networks. The idea being they're advocating, they're arguing for a cause or some group. In this case, I mean, we, we know what he's talking about. Most news organizations are political shills. They, they have a political, they don't even have like a political ideology that they're defending, like a, like a coherent philosophy. What they have is, at best, an ideology tied to a political party, and they do what they can to get votes for that political party. He's done with that. He wants it to go back to the truth. In this article, summing up more of what he says, says, uh, quoting the article, not him, CNN is expected to get an overhaul that includes more hard news and less opinion programming. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Uh, going now to uh, a different article, also from the New York Post, also about CNN, this time from Chris Licht, L-I-C-H-T. This is the new CEO of CNN directly. He says, quote, I think we can be a beacon in regaining that trust by being an organization that exemplifies the best characteristics of journalism. Fearlessly speaking truth to power, challenging the status quo, questioning groupthink, and educating viewers and readers with straightforward facts and insightful commentary while always being respectful of differing viewpoints. Close quote. In this case, uh, you know, that's, his is a little more generic than David Zaslav. But, but the idea is clearly that they're trying to return to a standard of journalism that we would recognize as journalism rather than advocacy. And I wish them the absolute best of luck. If they can turn CNN around, if they can throw away most of the political commentary and write that ship, that would be amazing. I would, I would have nothing but praise for them. I don't care the, you know, forget the brand CNN, what it's meant in the past. If these guys are serious about this and they can do it, Godspeed. I, I asked Brad about this. It's too bad he's not here to say this himself. But I said, Brad, you're the CEO. Imagine you're the CEO of CNN. What on earth would it take? What would you do? Imagine you have this goal. You want to turn CNN into a legitimate news organization unlike MSNBC, Fox News, and all these others. What on earth do you do? And he said, I start by firing almost everybody. Like almost all of the shows would need to be canceled and you'd have to get new people. And I think that's accurate. Now, if you do that, you have a very good chance of sinking the ship, right? You, you fire everybody or almost everybody or 50% of the people even. You're probably going to sink the ship. CNN may just go under. But if you don't, I'm pretty confident you don't change anything. You have to change the people if you want to change the culture. 
You can't just go in there and, and tell them, guys, stop doing what you're doing. Tell real news. That's not how it works. You have to change the people in place. Now, they, they have changed some people. I know they've got like Chris Wallace and some others, uh, some new blood that are actually from Fox News and are kind of the old time style reporter. I don't know how partisan they've become over the years or, or <laughs> I know almost nothing about them. Generations before me. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe maybe they can do it. Maybe we can be optimistic for them. <laughs> That's certainly something Brad and I will keep an eye on. If CNN changed, man, that would be that would be the story of the century. They were able to write that ship. For now, though, I'm extremely skeptical that it's possible because it would take such drastic measures, and I don't think they're going to take those drastic measures. They need to. CNN is a sinking ship already, and it would if if you did that, if you fired a bunch of the people and you replaced them, it would look like you sunk the ship if it went under quickly. But that's not the truth. The truth is. It's sinking right now, and it's just doing it slowly. And if you want to save it, you have to take drastic action, or you can continue to write it out and pretend that everything's fine or that you can gradually change it and so on. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm excited. to uh, if, if there's news that they you know, try and hire some of the independent journalists that are now over on Substack and things like that, that would be, that would be wonderful. That would be amazing. But if CNN is trying to change their model, what does that tell you? If the CEO says, this is what, is, what we're going to do, and it's necessary to do that, like if CNN were wildly successful, the Discovery merger would not change anything. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be overhauling it, even if they didn't like it. The point is, CNN is not successful. All of these classic media groups are slowly bleeding out. They need a change. The economics demands some kind of action. They're not winning. The, the, the propaganda is not winning. The momentum is on the side of the rebels. It's on the side of Substack. It's on the side of Barry Weiss and even the Daily Wire, which is something like uh, Fox News 2.0 in some ways. I think, I think they're significantly better. Uh, and so maybe that's a disservice to describe them that way. Um, but they're still very, they're still very much partisan in their commentary, uh, and openly so. And they, they're at least, they're at least open about it, I suppose, is one step forward. And they're willing to, to make an argument and they're willing to hold Republicans accountable. They're not merely tools of the Republican Party. Well, so credit where credit's due. Um, but breaking points, who I mentioned from time to time, breaking points are like openly progressive working, pro-working class, you know, socialist in the Bernie Sanders, Sanders style, and they're solid gold. I'll listen to them all day before I take serious news from CNN. It's just, it's worlds apart because they're, despite their biases, they're practicing actual journalism. They're actually trying to give you good information. Anyway, I digress. All of this puts the battle in Twitter and the economics of this whole thing, you know, the, the pressures of the market to supply what the market wants. And what the market wants is, well, to some degree, companies that don't hate them. There's a significant portion, conservative portion of the population who just want a business that isn't going to tell them they're vile and what they're doing is unacceptable and what they think is unacceptable and so on. Enter Elon Musk going to buy Twitter and you have... <laughs> You have a strange hero story 
where the remarkably not conservative Elon Musk, though he recently said he expects to vote Republican in the next election for the first time in his life, but he's, that, does not, that does not by any stretch make him conservative or libertarian or uh, any, you know, anything other than liberal. He just has been left behind. <laughs> There's a funny meme that expresses this really well. I'm not going to attempt to describe it online. But the idea is you, you can be standing still in your beliefs and suddenly feel like you're a part of the other party. It happens all the time, even without you changing significantly, because the parties vacillate so so much on their views. So you have Elon Musk coming in to buy Twitter in the name of free speech. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, this was a, he is driven here by his principles, not his bank, not his, not his uh, desire for profit or to become successful or to make a productive business. Now he hopes to do that too, but he's buying this out because he thinks it's important for free speech. We mentioned that Twitter is the public square in some sense and that I, I actually, I regret that I said that because often what people mean when they say that is you should have rights to be on Twitter. It's a ridiculous notion. Uh, but it's where a lot of very important people post things. It's good for finding news. And it's, uh, it's where a lot of the debate is happening. I don't know why it ended up on Twitter of all places, but thus it is. It's the world we live in. He goes in to buy Twitter, right? He, everything is moving forward. There's caveats in the deal. Uh, if you back out at this point, you have to pay a billion dollars, which is a crazy amount of money. And, it's, and it works both ways, um, unless there's some kind of violation. Well, Elon Musk right now is saying he's considering backing out of the deal. And the reason is he went into the deal under the impression that about 5% of Twitter is bots. Five percent of the users there are not real people. There, uh, bots can is kind of a flexible term. It could be something like uh, an, an actual computer program that posts things automatically, <laughs> or it can be, uh, which would be make sense as the term bot. But it can also just be you have twenty accounts. One of them is actually your account, and the other nineteen you use to comment on things and to harass people, and etc. Um, this is supposedly, you know, Russia had a bunch of bot accounts, you know, accounts that were not really representing a single person and that did not reflect their opinions and whatnot. It's a it, it, fake users may be a good way to think of it. Turns out that 5% that Twitter had claimed is questionable. Now, it's questionable for a variety of reasons. The sample size that Twitter used to collect the information to say 5% of the users are bots was 100 accounts. They tested 100 accounts. Five of them were bots. Therefore, 5% of the users on Twitter are bots. Now, there's, it's more complicated than that, and I didn't look into the details of how they tested it. If you took a random sample of 100 accounts and you tested them, you could get and, and let's pretend for a second, for the sake of argument, that 5% of all the Twitter users are bots. Because of the way variation works in statistical gathering, what you want is a very large sample size so that you can say with authority that it's about 5% and the margin of error is X. Uh, you, if you had a good sample size, the margin of error would be like 1% to 2.5%. 
if you have a very small sample size, maybe you just got unlucky, right? You flip a coin a hundred times. What are the odds that it's going to be 50-50? Very low. You flip the coin 10,000 times. And the more times you flip a coin in your test to see whether it's heads or tails, the more likely it's going to be to be right around 50%. That's just the way it works. So if you want statistical accuracy, if you want to see what the actual probability is of finding a bot versus a user, you want to increase the sample size. 100 is way too low. You could get really unlucky. And maybe the the number of bots on there is actually 95%. And just by chance, you know, you you got 95% real people, 5% bots. But then there's the question of how are you defining bots in the case of the sample size, etc. So Prague Arwal, uh, my I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name correctly. I don't I I've even heard it said out loud, at least that I'm aware of. The current CEO of Twitter posted a lengthy reply explaining the methodology, uh, which he seems to be personally involved with, and going from there. Um, And maybe he has a case. Maybe they've done certain things so that it's not a random sample of 100 people and, and that it is fairly representative. But Elon Musk is extremely suspicious that it's much higher than that, or that it's at least a little bit higher than that. Now, why does this matter? The value of the company depends on how much revenue they can pull in. How much revenue they can pull in depends on advertising. Advertising and the value of being able to advertise on Twitter depends on how many real people are seeing the advertisements. And how would you know unless you know how many of them, how many of the users are bots and how many of the users are real people? So at the end of the day, this question is actually extremely important in terms of the profitability of this company and in its long-term sustainability. It's not just extremely important. It's like the most important question they could be asking. And so if this number is actually, if, if it's 10% instead of 5%, that significantly decreases the value of Twitter as a company. The idea being that Musk, by calling this into question, is calling the entire deal into question because he's basically saying, I'm buying something very different if it's 5% bots or 7% bots or 3% bots or 10% bots, right? This number is extremely important. And it is. He's not wrong there. Um, For some reason, when people are discussing this, I keep seeing people discuss this as if he's creating something out of nothing or as if he's simply playing a game. I heard heard the Daily Wire talking about it in this way. Uh, I think it was Ben Shapiro who said this is... This is basically Elon Musk having them over a barrel. And, and there's some truth to that because when Elon Musk says, now I'm questioning the deal, the deal, guess what happens to Twitter's stock? It plummets. Twitter's stock goes from like $54 to $37. You know, it's, it's a, just like when he said he wants to buy the company, the stock jumped. Now when he's saying, I'm not sure I'm going to buy this company, I'm not, this company, it's dropping. And it makes sense. He's a, people trust his opinion. He's earned that trust through a history of success in the, in the market. If he thinks it's not worth that much, it's probably not worth that much. You know, who, who else are you going to trust on that judgment call? So now if he's just playing them, and he could be just playing them, if he's just playing them, that's really rough. That, that's, that's, uh, he's messing with 
massive amounts of money and through that massive amounts of money, the careers and lives of tons of people. But I think there's actual reason to, as I said, I think the, the actual value of the company here depends on this number. And this number is internally generated by Twitter, which is another ridiculous element. If, if you're, you really don't want, you want a third party to assess this kind of thing. Now, in defense of the Twitter company, they shot back, hey, all this information was public. You know, everything that you're talking about now, you could have known before you made the deal. There's been no like revelation here, right? Every, you knew this, you knew it was 5%. You could have looked into the methodology. You could have done all of this before you made the deal. So since there's not been some kind of revelation, this does not excuse you from the deal. And therefore, if you left, you'd have to pay us. I'm not sure legally where that's going to fall on, but I think that that seems like a strong argument to me that actually, yeah, Elon could have, if Elon's not sure of these numbers, it's not because of something, some new revelation that changes the nature of the deal. He just didn't do his due, his due diligence, right? And I think that's a, that's a solid argument. Um, again, I, I don't know legally what the implications would be. But then, <laughs> then... This is where things get go off the rails. If you've been paying attention to Twitter, or you've been on, I assume this has been making the rounds on Facebook and other places as well. Project Veritas revealed two videos showing employees from Twitter talking about the company and talking about uh, Elon Musk buying it and what they think of Elon Musk, what they think of the company, how the company's been running, and so on. And the results are truly something special. Um, before I get into what the videos contain and what we learn from the two Project Veritas videos, let me just briefly mention who Project Veritas is, how they acquired these videos, and, uh, and refer you to a previous episode that we did on this. So one of the major problems in the world is getting accurate information, right? That's, that's always been a problem. It's always a, it's, it's very difficult to get accurate information. It's very difficult to, even if you are a scientist, very, very carefully applying the scientific method, it's remarkably hard. People underestimate how difficult it is to gather information in a way that you can back it in the way that you can be confident in it. Now that problem is exacerbated by a world in which people are lying to you. We just talked about the news. I just went through CNN, right? CNN lies to you on a regular basis. Their goal is to tell you certain things in order to get you to act in a certain way. And it's the way that you act that is the the focus, right? It's not what happened in the world. It's it's how do I get you to behave in the way that I think is wise and prudent. And, and that's their primary goal. It's, it's fundamentally manipulation. And they're not the only ones who do this. This is common in the news. It wasn't always this way. It's always been a temptation. It's now really, really bad. So in that world, the problem of getting truth 
when you are not a firsthand witness, you're not a, you're, you're not only are you not a scientist in a lab capable of running an experiment in a controlled environment and trying to control for the various factors, which is extremely hard. You're not even there, right? You're hearing about this third hand, fourth hand through organizations, and you're getting competing narratives that obviously have political biases and that are obviously politically driven. So what on earth do you do? There are claims about Twitter that Twitter is censoring people and that they are there. It's not that they have a set of rules that they are applying fairly and conservatives violated a lot. It's that conservatives are specifically being targeted and censored. So their ideas are not shared because they think their ideas are wrong and dangerous and so on. And this is, this is sheer political censorship. Now, how on earth are you going to know whether that's true? Are you going to believe it because Fox News told you? Are you going to believe it because some, you know, because uh, some Twitter account that you've never heard of is kicked off that's being followed by a bunch of what, what you may perceive as radical conservatives? Of course not. How on earth are you going to persuade someone who agrees and who suspects that these people getting kicked off actually deserve it? How are you going to persuade that person that there's real nefarious manipulation going on here. That's the problem that Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe looked at and said, I can only think of one solution. And it's a solution that some people are not going to like, but it's necessary in a world where everybody is lying to you. And the answer is, for James O'Keefe, we're going to get into a situation where the person We'll admit that's what's actually happening. And I'm going to film it so you can see them. You can see some of the context. You can look them in the eye and you can hear them say, yeah, we're censoring conservatives because they don't like them. We don't like them. We don't, we think their ideas are dangerous. And the, the best answer is, you don't, we just don't let them let people hear their ideas. Now that's not perfect evidence, right? One person talking isn't necessarily representative of the whole group, nor is uh, one person talking always without, you know, is it always crystal clear? But is that better than reading a Fox News story? What if you could hear somebody high up at Twitter talking about the kind of conduct that, biz that Twitter does and how they censor things, how they, what they think of free speech? In a private conversation, not the kind of sculpted, carefully worded things you hear through a, a news press release, right? But somewhere private with someone that they would tell the truth to. That's what Project Veritas is trying to get. And that's what, in this case, they got. And as I said, it's not, it's not proof positive per se. It's, it's as good as you can get. I agree with James O'Keefe's assessment. That this is as good as you can get. You're not going to get better than this. And if this isn't persuasive, nothing will be. Um... But you do take it with a grain of salt because it's not necessarily the opinions of, of one employee is not necessarily representative of all of the company. But you can at least listen to, uh, if you get this, this firsthand account, yeah, this relatively unedited video, you watch the video and you can judge that for yourself, and you hear them talk about it and you hear it out of their own mouths, then perhaps from there, you can then make sense of the world, right? You can, you can say, okay. Well, now that I know that, what I heard here is probably true. What I heard here 
definitely BS. What I'm hearing from this group seems accurate. I think that that is probably what's happening inside of Twitter. What I'm hearing over here, definitely not true, right? You can, you can, this is a touchstone per se. This gives you a point of hard data, or at least harder data than the, than a random news story. And you can use that to kind of navigate through the rest of it. So that's what, that's what you should be looking for is, is we, I summarize some of these. I'm absolutely going to link the videos here. Project Veritas, for some reason, is banned from Twitter. They're banned from, uh, they're, they're censored from most places. So uh, they're either banned, their direct accounts are banned. And if you share their videos, uh, often there's a shadow ban so that the video doesn't go very far. Luckily, at this point, there are so many people sharing Project Veritas's videos that it's a lost cause. So now, even though they can't get a, an account on Twitter, you absolutely can share their stuff on Twitter. And I don't think anything bad's going to happen to you. And and same on other other platforms. It's just a funny world because initially they tried to shut them out completely. It failed. Now, if you're wondering about the methods, you know, specifically going in undercover and filming someone um, and the moral issues around that, this is where I'm going to point you to another episode. I just don't have time to go into it right now. Look at episode, <clears throat> look at our episode 77 of Rethinking Politics. We get into the moral dilemma we get into the the rights questions around it, things like privacy and uh, and uh, whether or not you have a right to your image and your voice, and whether or not you, you know what role property rights play in this, the variations in state laws, and the and then the moral questions: Is it right to do this? Um, I I am on the yes, this is right to do this. As he's as they are doing it, it's. I suppose right enough. In a different world, Brad and I's answer to this question is is that actually the way we think of a right to privacy and these other things is, is completely wrong. The right to free speech, right to privacy, these are the way we think of them is completely wrong. Now there is a there are rights that would protect you to some degree, but they're not at all like the way that we think of them. So anyway, in terms of rethinking politics, we would rethink that from top to bottom. And so our opinion would be very different. It'd be weird for me to state some of the conclusions we draw without giving you the basis because it seemed like we were just picking random things. But but I think, unfortunately, the whole thing has to go as it is now. Sans that, without that opportunity, I think what O'Keefe is doing is is justified. So that aside, and and I don't necessarily feel warm and fuzzy about it as a side note. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's not that I don't have some hangups about it. And there are some concerns that I think are, are reasonable about this methodology. That aside, the first interview is with a, a senior Twitter engineer. And essentially all I can give you right now is a teaser because you should really listen to the whole thing, getting the context of it, getting the feel of the video, getting the feel of this person as they're in this, this seemingly private conversation is I think it changes everything. I think the method that Project Veritas uses, if watched, will be persuasive. I think it's, anyway, we can go on about that for a while, but I'm going to give you a few highlights. Among the things he says, talking about the merger, he says, and or describing, he's describing his co-employee, his fellow employees, and he says, they're like, this would be my last day if it happens. A lot has changed. Like, we're stress eating a lot. Like, we're all worried for our jobs. Later on that same vein, he says, our jobs are at stake. He's a capitalist and we weren't really operating as capitalists, more like very socialist, like we're all commie as F. 
course, that's my edit there. <laughs> he actually says the F word. Uh, uh, there's some of the most interesting revelations to me were about their business practices. They seem to have no concerns for operating expenses. Um, uh, you get more of this in the second video that was released as well. Uh, Twitter, as Brad and I have noted before, is not profitable. It's a business that has succeeded because people believe one day it will be. Enough capitalists, enough, uh, enough investors think that Twitter will be profitable that their investment in it has kept it going despite the fact that it loses money every year. With regards to free speech, when he's asked about free speech, he says, Twitter does not believe in free speech. Elon believes in free speech. That's pretty direct. He then goes on to say that he, they are specifically censoring the right, which shouldn't be news to anyone, but Hopefully, if you happen to be on the left and agree with the biases of Twitter and also be persuaded that free speech is a good thing or that, or that allowing differing opinions to be expressed so that you can hash them out in the in work and that that's actually better for ideas than silencing one, well, it's going to be hard to argue with the, the evidence of what this guy says, especially since it's then confirmed in the second interview. I could go on about this one. Uh, there's lots of other interesting things there. The fact that he worked like four hours a week. You can just, if you, if you want to say, take a mental health day or several or a month, you can. I mean, it's no wonder they're losing money. Anyway, the second one. The second one is even more interesting. You get from this one, uh, the, the guy who's, who's in this one is called a uh, Twitter lead client partner is his title. I'm not, I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. As partner in the title, presumably it's important, but you never know. There's nothing like title inflation to make you feel good as a minimum wage employee with an impressive sounding title because they don't want you to feel bad. I've, <laughs> over the, my, the last, what, 15 years of my life, I've worked more than a couple minimum wage jobs when I was younger. And, and some of the titles were absolutely ridiculous and clearly meant to improve my self-esteem. Anyway, this guy, this guy says so many things. The second video is, the first video was amazing. The second video is unbelievable. He points out that, uh, again, with the related to the profits, he says, yeah, right now we don't make a profit. And he says, quote, I'm going to say ideology, which is what led us to into not being profitable, close quote. Within the context of the conversation, that, that phrasing makes more sense. But he openly says it's basically, it's basically our, our political ideology that makes us not profitable because we don't believe in capitalism. And, and so we're not, acting, uh, we're not acting in a way that would try and make money. Now, whatever you may think of that, let me just throw in this one little bit. The way you make money is by offering something that someone wants. And doing that at a cost where it's not only good for them, but it's good for you because you're not losing money. And if you're not doing that, then the exchanges that are happening are not worthwhile for both parties. In this case, it's not worthwhile for the business, which is weird. Uh, it's we <laughs> The beauty of an exchange is that both parties can benefit. You can both walk away happy, but Twitter... I guess Twitter is walking away happy because they keep making the exchange, 
but they could also do it in a way that made money and brought money to the investors and shareholders and whatnot. Anyway, that's that's why they ended up having to accept Elon Musk's deal is because the shareholders have a have a financial have a financial they have a legal obligation to the financial welfare of their shareholders. And so if they didn't accept Elon Musk's deal, then the shareholders could sue them, rightfully so, because they're supposed to represent their financial interests and they have to at least put it before the shareholders or accept the deal. The other things this guy says, <laughs> unrelated to the business practices, which I could go on about more, but uh, and and his the way he attributes it to their ideology is the reason they don't make a profit. He, with regards to free speech, he says, people don't know how to make a rational decision if you don't put out correct things that are supposed to be out in public, right? Close quote. He poses that as a question to the person speaking to him. Well, yes and no, right? Is it, is it Twitter's job to determine what's supposed to be out in the public and what's correct? Clearly what they have an idea of what a rational decision would look like. This is back to the CNN manipulation. If you believe that a rational decision would lead you to do X, then if people are not doing X, maybe the problem is the information they're getting and you just need to control the information better. And that seems to be what this guy has concluded. I just got to control the information, give them the right information, and then they will make the rational decision and they will do X. And I will know I've succeeded when they do X. Right? That's, the, that's the testing ground. That's the, the moment in which your, your strategy has become effective and you've proved that it works because they're doing what you want them to do. Now, you do not want someone over you who has that idea, that hubris that says, I know what's good for you and, when you are, and I will give you what you need to know so that you do what I know is good for you. That is absolutely the road to tyranny. And if we weren't such a free country and that, that idea seeped in and we let it stand, you wouldn't get pushback. You wouldn't get companies rising up. You wouldn't get Elon Musk coming in to purchase it to change things. And you would eventually get that coming from the government, which is what the disinformation board was going to be. Uh, I think that's been curtailed to some degree. All of that is the road to tyranny. And, and, and how could it be anything else? You know what's good for you them. You know what decisions they should make you know, you then therefore control the information so that they do that. It's a, it's the tyranny of, at least in theory, it's the tyranny of the, uh, how did C.S. Lewis phrase it? The tyranny of those who want what's best for you or something like that. The tyranny of those who are doing it out of the goodness of their own hearts. And he says, uh, it's much worse than a normal tyranny because in a normal tyranny, the greedy king may sleep. You know, he may get tired, he may get bored, he may get sated, but someone who believes they're doing it for your own good will be tireless in their tyranny because they have the approval of their own conscience. Anyway, he continues regarding free speech. The rest of us who have been here believe in something that's good for the planet and not to give people free speech, close quote. It gets worse. Now, these, these things shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, I fear they probably are surprising to too many people. But he, he then makes what is one of the biggest mistakes on camera perhaps anyone has made that I'm aware of in terms of public figures. He specifically insults Elon Musk. Now imagine your business is about to be bought by the richest man in the world, and he is 
about to be your boss and he's about to make changes in the company and you say this, quote, Elon Musk as a person is whatever. I don't like, he's a looney tune. He has, he has Asperger's. He returned, <laughs> close quote, he returns to that a little bit later. He has Asperger's, so he's special. We all know that, and that's fine. So here, no, no wonder he's going to say some effing crazy crap because he's special, close quote. And I'm editing some of the words there. That insulting him for his Asperger's syndrome seems unwise in any circumstance. And even if the rest of this, this is, a, this is beyond what Veritas, Project Veritas was looking for, but if they're going to personally insult Elon Musk and take shots at him, um, what's, what's crazy about it is this guy seems to believe it. He entirely writes off Elon Musk's opinion. Later he says, and I'm paraphrasing this, I don't have this quote up in front of me, but he also says in this interview, um, this, un, this interview he didn't know was an interview, he points out that that he's, he believes that the employees at Twitter will be able to check Elon once Elon takes over because Elon will say something like, okay, don't censor this. And they'll be like, but if we don't censor it, then X uh, and Elon will have nothing to say to that because he doesn't really have an argument. He'll just be like, well, I want people to be responsible for their own decisions. And the idea is that this Twitter executive can't even see the merits of Elon's argument, which makes it very hard to come up with a counterargument. And what does he do instead? He, he caricatures him. He says, clearly he believes this basically because of his Asperger's. He's a, he's a looney tune, as he describes him. It's, this is the kind of, unfortunately, this is what too many elites think. And this is true on both sides, though it's predominantly, uh, Right now, you see it a lot, specifically on the left, because the lefts are run most of the intellectual institutions right now. At least the, the, the public institutions are often staffed by people of left-leaning ideologies. And it's a hubris. It's this idea that I know better than you. In fact, you're so foolish that, that there's, there isn't even a reason for me to think you have something to say. I'm so far above you. I don't even need to consider your arguments and see if there's something of merit there. There's nothing to discuss. This guy's hubris throughout this interview is, is astounding. He's so convinced he's right. He's so convinced. And it's so strange to hear someone. What, what must he think the world is like that Elon Musk is able to navigate it and become so successful and to innovate in so many things? And to think that he's a Looney Tune, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe he thinks that he has some gift with numbers or mechanics or something, but not, not with people. I don't, I, don't know what he, I don't know what world this guy is living in, but he's clearly isolated from the rest of the world and from people who disagree with him because he discards them entirely. Now, that's very common. This isn't, a, like I said, this isn't a particular sin of people who are woke, though it is specifically, a, it is a noteworthy sin of people who are woke because that's what the, that's what the word implies, right? There, you are awake. You are awake. You are awake and the rest of the world is sleeping. That's the, the point of the term is to identify people who have woken up to things they couldn't previously see 
and now see it. And that's a useful term for discussing education, but it also conveys a, an elite sense, right? An elitist idea that some people can see it, other people cannot. The people who can see it need to lead everybody else. Again, that's a, I have mixed feelings about that because in some ways that's always true of knowledge. People with wisdom need to help people who don't have wisdom. But it becomes much more dangerous if what you mean is, I have wisdom, you don't, I'm going to make sure you do the right thing. Rather than, I have wisdom, let me teach you. These are, this is two very different approaches to how you handle knowledge. Do you share it? Do you elevate other people to be your equals? Or do you rule over the other people because they are your inferiors? And that's a fundamentally different way of, of acting within the world. This guy is ruling over other people because they are, his, they are inferior to him. And uh, that's unfortunately a very common outlook, especially among what is in every nation referred to as a kind of intelligentsia, right? An elite class who are particularly well-educated, who are particularly intelligent. Now, this story has a funny conclusion. And I'm just going to tell this last little bit about this that, that just, just blows my mind. Now, getting these two interviews, one of the things that I, one objection that I heard that I want to respond to real quick is that people suspect that the interview itself is heavily edited to make them look bad. The only way to counter that argument is to say, go watch it. Go watch it and see. See if the things they're saying are so far out of context that you don't think they mean them in the way that they're, that they are, that I'm saying they do, or that the Project Veritas wants you to think they, they mean. And I think what you're going to get is because it's such an, it's an un, the moments that these are recorded in are so unguarded that the people are just saying what they think. And you can actually take them at their word. And there's something beautiful to that. Veritas, Project Veritas has, has really gotten behind the curtain in a way that you can see what these people think. And they're not pretending. So it's not, it's not like a lawyer speaking where it can have several meanings and they're deliberately hiding things, right? This is, these people are very open about what they think because they're talking to people who they trust. Wrongfully, as it turns out, but that's another story, right? That's, that's going back to the moral question here and when, when how gray this, this is. And like I said, episode 77, if you want to get into that. The other objection is, what if these people are really, really not representative of the rest of the group. What if these, what if Project Veritas actually got 10 people to talk on camera and they pick the two most extreme and they're sharing? One of the problems with that, one of my counter arguments to that possibility is that there's a lot of information out there about Twitter that suggests this is representative. As I said, these are not hard proof that everyone is like this, but these are hard points of data that you could then say, how does the rest of the information out there make sense? And I think this fits with what I expect out of Twitter based on as careful a look as I can give it. The second counter argument, it is ridiculously hard to get this kind of information from people. 
to have somebody willing to record them and do this kind of investigative journalism. It is so hard. And if they have gotten, say these people are one in a hundred in terms of uh, their views, they're at the really extreme end for a Twitter employee. To find two of them and to have gone through what would that require you to have gone through you know, in a random odds? That means you went through 198 other people if they're one in a hundred or if they're, or if they're maybe on the, in the 10th percentile, right? They, they're out of 10 people. These people would be the most extreme. If you grabbed a random, you know, a, a group of 10 people, employees, and they were one of them, they would be the most extreme. Then, then you went through 18 other interviews. How, how many interviews do you think Project Veritas is able to get like this. Because I will bet they got two, and these are them. Because if it were easy, this kind of thing would be all over, and Project Veritas would be making videos left and right. As it is, doing this is ridiculously hard. It's one of the reasons that most journalists, most journalists, most uh, big media cor corporations don't do this anymore. Part of it is a, is a change in value and politics and things and legal standards and other various things that uh, some of which we discussed in that episode 77 I mentioned. But in terms of raw resources required to do this, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely expensive, extremely time consuming, and it's possible you get absolutely nothing worth sharing. Which is why I said, I bet they have got two interviews like this, of people talking candidly, about things internal, and these are them. Maybe it may be a third, right? maybe a third, maybe even a fourth. But I'll bet these guys, in fact, we have internal polling from Twitter indicating how many of them were against the takeover, against the buyout, and 50% uh, of them were against. 50 of them, 50% of them were actually fine with it. So it's actually about half and half, which, which means these, these people probably are, they're at least, they're not representative of the whole company, and they might not even be representative of 50% of it, but I bet they're representative of about 40% of it. That they're apt representations, maybe a little looser about uh, how careful they are about saying these kind of things. That second interview, the one with the Twitter executive, the client person, he, uh, the one who insults Elon Musk, he actually shows the guy interviewing him an internal memo from Twitter saying, hey, everyone needs to be super careful about what they say to other people because you never know if they might be filming you. People like Project Veritas are out there trying to get you to say things you shouldn't. So just watch yourself. And then he said, the guy says, it's a good thing I met you organically or I would be super suspicious. You know, I'd, I'd be asking you all kinds of questions. The irony being that he then showed this internal memo <laughs> <laughs> to someone who who was filming him. Um, beyond those objections, let me finish the story. O'Keefe is waiting, the head of Project Veritas is waiting for this Twitter executive after he realizes he's been filmed. I don't know how that went down. I don't know when he makes a connection. I don't know if they confront him about it and say, hey, that was one of our guys and he filmed you. Um, right now, Project Veritas doesn't actually have a massive team. Most of the people who come to them are whistleblowers. Um, I don't know in this case if the two people 
two different people. One's a woman, one's a man. You never see them. A woman in the first video is is speaking to the guy and recording him, and a man in the second video is speaking to the the executive and and filming him. Um, I don't know if they're employees of Project Veritas. Uh, they very well might be, because if there's a time to target someone and you're wondering who to target right now for such things, it'd be Twitter. Twitter is in upheaval. They've obviously got a lot of things going on internally. So it's very possible. Or these could be whistleblowers. They could be people who are employees there, uh, people who know people there. Now, as I'm thinking about it, I think that second one for sure is a Project Veritas employee. That's someone who deliberately sought contact because he mentions it later that it took like three months to earn this guy's trust. And that's why he thought it was this kind of organic thing. It was very, very slow and careful the way they developed the relationship so that he would trust them. Besides the point, other than, I mean, besides the point, it's extremely interesting, that kind of investigative journalist work and, and a little bit, a little bit uh, gray, as I said before, a little bit make you feel maybe a little dirty because it's, it's basically spy work. Back to the story. James O'Keefe is waiting outside of a place, presumably the place where that interview happened, and, uh, and he tries to speak to the guy, tries to get him to talk. Because, look, we've already got you on camera. You've already said some things. You've already incriminated yourself. I've already got the audio. You already called Elon Musk special, special needs. Um, let's talk. And the guy wouldn't talk. And so O'Keefe follows him down the street, and there's this bizarre chase where the cameraman's running sideways to get a film, to get a good shot of O'Keefe and this executive. The executive goes into a restaurant Lady, you can you can find his name. They post the name of them. Um, it's important for Project Veritas that you can actually verify these people are real people who actually work there. So they out the name of the person and the position. They don't like dox their address and things, but they give you some personal information, the necessary personal information, unless it's a whistleblower from within an organization, in which case they'll protect them for obvious reasons. But in cases like this, they they give you their information. I'm not saying his name because... I don't think there's any reason to call attention to his, his actual identity. The guy's already having a probably the worst day of his life, the worst week of his life right now, starting from when that happened. So he flees into a restaurant. O'Keefe waits for him outside. He goes then down the street. He ends up going into a comedy club. The owner of the comedy club comes out to see what's happening, talks to O'Keefe, at each of these places, O'Keefe runs into people. He says what's happening. He explains it to them. And they go, hey, I'm a fan of Elon Musk. <laughs> and then from there, they basically work with him. <laughs> and the, the comedy club owner does the same thing. He says, oh, hey, I'm a, I'm a fan of Elon Musk. Hey, do you want to come inside and go on stage and call the guy out? <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, let's do this thing. So he goes inside following the owner. O'Keefe goes inside following the owner. They start live streaming on Instagram. Uh, this little thing. So they're like, this is going to be a great moment. As they walk in, the guy walks past them and goes out now wearing a mask. So the, the moment is ruined. Uh, they then follow the guy a little further. He climbs to a taxi, leaves. This really weird chase scene is now over. Um, then the owner of the club approaches O'Keefe and they have a conversation and he invites O'Keefe to headline in the comedy club 
a few nights from that. It may, it may have been a week. I don't know when the original filming of this was. The Ver Project Veritas released it later, I think waiting for a good time. And Anyway, the, the, the comedy club performance happened last night. It would be the 18th of May. You can watch it on YouTube, where O'Keefe goes through this weird chase and some of the things the guy said. Now, I don't know if that's your thing. They literally just make fun of the guy. And as I said, this guy's had a rough enough week already. This is another one of those lines that maybe James O'Keefe's, you might conclude that James O'Keefe's Project Veritas is doing good work, that this kind of thing is necessary, that it's justified. But maybe getting up and making fun of him in a comedy club is too far. I think that's probably a fair, a fair line to draw. And maybe you could draw the line earlier. But it's there. It's on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing. Um, they get Adam Carolla and the, another comedian also perform there. I don't know if that's on YouTube. But at least O'Keefe's story, in which he plays the video, or at least significant portions of it, does some slides. And anyway, I, <laughs> I'd be curious. What, if you watch it, let us know what you think in the comments of this episode. I'd be curious what you think of all of the Project Veritas stuff. You think it's, if, if you think it's too heavily edited, um, and so on. But this just seems like the fact that this concludes with a comedy club where he hides in, and then O'Keefe ends up performing there. Seems like I don't know. The whole thing just seems surreal. The whole thing seems surreal. You watch the videos. You watch the chase. You then he then performs at the club talking about it it's it's a mad world we live in it's it's really weird <laughs> it's really weird this whole twitter thing really weird back to the big issues i don't know what's going to happen with twitter i think elon musk is going to back out of the deal i think if he can find a way to justify backing out of the deal he will and then i think he's going to make a new bid at a much lower price, or at least a lower price. When you're talking billions of dollars, I don't remember the final figure for what he agreed to. It's in previous episodes. When you're talking about that much money, if you can negotiate it down 5 billion, 10 billion, from, where is it? It's like 40s or 50s. That's a big deal. And this may just be Elon negotiating on a point that is valid, which is, what is the actual value of this company? How do, you, how do you even sell advertising if you can't say definitively how many bots are going to be seeing it versus how many people? That's absolutely critical information. I don't know why, I don't know why the investors, you know, maybe Elon is making something out of nothing and the numbers actually are good. But if they weren't good, the people who've been buying advertising are probably seeing this and they're like, yeah, we're going to pull our advertising. Unless Musk takes over, we're going to pull our advertising because who knows what we're getting for our money, right? And that's, that seems perfectly reasonable unless you can verify that the numbers are legitimate, which is weird if they're internally generated and they massively affect the stock value, right? Isn't that, isn't that a strange combination there? If I report the numbers that determine the value of my company in a massive way, that's sketchy at best. I mean, obviously the users and things, there are other things that you can verify externally, presumably, but this is absolutely critical because this is the mechanism by which you fund it. 
If he can verify that, if he kind of turns out to be reasonable level where he thinks he can solve the problem still, and if it's different than 10%, you know, 5%, then he will negotiate the price down. He will then buy Twitter and things will go forward as expected. Just with Elon getting a better deal. But in terms of the broader culture, the tide is shifting against Twitter as it is now. It's against CNN as it is now. It's against Harry's, which is a non-political company that just happened to take a political side. And the dumb part of all of this is this isn't this isn't good for us. Like this isn't good for me that Harry's is now competing with Jeremy's because they're not competing on the basis of a quality product, which is the only thing that should matter if you're buying a razor. You know, as long as they're not like, you know, there are other things that could ruin it. I think, for example, if it's being made with slave labor is a legitimate line to draw and say, no, none of that. If, if it's being made, you know, there's, there are other things that can ruin it. But, in, but assuming that things are, the process is moral, you know, that it's not some, something nefarious underneath. A good product should be the point. And if we're going to get an economy competing based on virtue signaling for different political ideologies, we're going to get products that are not improving. That's going to, if that's the secondary thing, if what the people really want is a conservative razor, that's less attention to a good razor. If what people really want is a conservative news station, because all of the liberal news stations are bashing on them, you know, I I mean, the actual news divide is pretty even, depending on how you measure it, but not counting local and other publications. Um, But that aside, I I guess uh, groups like the Razors are a much better example. If people want an NBA that isn't woke, they want basketball that isn't woke, and they and it gets bad enough that they're willing to field another competitive group. I mean, the NBA or the NFL would be the big ones. Those are really hard to change. By definition, they're exclusive. They're competing for a limited pool of talent. It'd be really hard to make a competitor for them. The tendency there is towards monopoly in some sense inherently. And I don't think that's necessarily, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's just the way it is. If you want the best at anything, you're going to, at the top, have what appears to be a monopoly by some definitions, by modern economic definitions, which I think are stupid, neither here nor there. You're going to have a, uh, you're going to have what appears to be a monopoly. That's just the way it is, uh, because there's only so many people who can compete at that level. And there's only so many companies that can field the funding for someone that compete at that level, right? And in entertainment dividing that doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. Unless you have a, I guess, I guess that's not always true as I'm, as I'm speaking. I guess the acting is a good example. Actually, the division of Hollywood into various uh, streaming platforms and things has actually produced better content. I will, I will die on that hill making that argument that actually, if you want entertainment, this is the best time to be alive. Despite the glory of the like movie star who could call names from before. This is better. This, this breakdown into small competitive groups. But, but that's different in part because the talent of acting isn't as clear as the talent of basketball. 
You can, you can tell the difference between a LeBron James and a not LeBron James. Can you really tell in any given role the quality difference between actors? Some, I mean, sometimes actors are terrible, right? You can spot that. But there's, it's very hard to say who the best actor is or even who the top 10 are. It's not hard to do that in other fields and like sports. Not hard. Anyway, I, the acting industry is a little different, but sports, sports talent, the top is always going to be an extremely exclusive group in which it would be very hard to divide because you can always pin down the best and you want the best playing against each other. You want the best playing against each other. That's the best. That's, that's going to be the highest form of entertainment. And so it's a, it's difficult for that natural tendency there makes for much more exclusion. That's not true in razors, right? That's not true in most economic goods and in most hard goods. You're not going to get that effect. You're going to get, what you want is competition and you want competition based on prioritizing different good things about razors. Maybe you have the best, some, you know, this certain feature about a razor here, this other company's like, okay, maybe we can't top that there, but we can provide this benefit. We can be cheaper. We can be, we can have, uh, you know, it can be a closer shave rather than a uh, long lasting razor, or it can be, you know, you can prioritize different things that are all good, thus creating a variety of options and the consumers can sort it out as best they can, ideally through a mechanism like Amazon's reviews, or uh, which is absolutely astounding <laughs> in some ways. It has problems. It has problems. I'm not going to get into that. But the idea is much better than any FDA-type organization has ever managed. Whether or not it's accurate, and uh, things like fraud, and uh, fraud especially from fake products posing to be the products you're buying, um, from international sellers who are getting favors from Amazon, that's a whole other story. Um, for various reasons, they don't crack down on certain nations like China. Uh, again, for po political reasons and, well, profit-driven motives, uh, and and political reasons they don't they don't do the things that they should there besides the point anyway this is i hope this has been interesting to you the the i hope we can get over this political marketplace i think it's a waste of time and effort to try as funny as the daily wires commercial for jeremy's razors is i wish that effort had been put into making a better razor as funny as their commentary is on their website about their, their razor package and how many insults it throws at woke people, I wish it had gone into making a better razor, right? This is just not the priorities that we want. As it is, this is the world we live in. And, and because this is the world we live in, this is better than the alternative. This is better than everyone just siding, taking one side and silencing all the conservatives. I think that's a massive mistake. There are good things in the conservative, uh, they're good conservative theorists. There are good ideas there that need to be incorporated into any theory that's going to take us forward, into any policy that's going to move us forward. Not necessarily drive it exclusively, but it can temper other bad ideas and it can uh, provide a dialogue that can improve the ideas that are good, as well as having some actual legitimate good ideas. I'll pause there. And with that, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time. 
This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks. Have a wonderful day.